Well, I, as we said, this is the, um, uh, the, the days and uh, weeks leading up to uh, Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur and Sukkot, I, uh, this uh, Hebrew month of Elul. And uh, usually uh, we're focused on Tishrei. When are the holidays? Tishrei. But this is a very important month. Uh, of uh, preparation, and there's a number of things that are done uh, uh, in uh, the synagogue uh, in preparation for this. There's a series of surfaces called slichot, for example. Uh, slichot, uh, in modern Hebrew, would be more something like excuse me, uh, but uh, it's sort of like uh, uh, being sorry, or therefore like uh, um, the, the sense is, uh, and slichot is a series of confessional prayers. And, uh, and there are actually a series of services leading up to the holidays. In fact, you may also be aware that uh, the shofar is blown uh, at particular times leading up to the holiday. And then, as we have been doing here, uh, Psalm 27 is read each week. Then also, uh, the Haftorah portions uh, during this period of time all come from the second part of Isaiah. And each Shabbat is called a Shabbat of Consolation. A Shabbat of Consolation. Remembering that there is indeed a great future uh, for Israel. Uh, and uh, consequently, of course, you know, for the world. Uh, and that the High Holy Days, we should approach the High Holy Days not like we're being called to the principal's office and we don't know what's going to happen at the end. In other words, approaching them with a dread, we're supposed to approach the High Holy Days with anticipation, even though they are days of repentance, uh, uh, you know, in days of confession. We're not supposed to be afraid to enter those days, but with a healthy awe and fear of God, of course. But we are supposed to recognize that he's waiting for those who seek him. He's waiting for us with open arms, and that's the idea behind a lot of this uh, preparation. And I hope that uh, we are preparing ourselves. The last thing we want to do is make Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, a seminar on finding uh, just on uh, Yeshua in the High Holy Days, you know? Now, Yeshua is in the High Holy Days, but we want to get the most out of these holidays for what they are called to be, days of repentance and confession leading up to Sukkot. And you know, from everything that I've read, especially from Second Temple literature, is that uh, many, 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 many years ago, that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were the preparation days for Sukkot, that Sukkot was the, the main day. Uh, and uh, I remember teaching a class, uh, I did both a mini course and an eight-week class on Sukkot. Uh, and, uh, and that was very profound, uh, to think that the days of uh, repentance and uh, reconciliation with, with God were for the purpose of entering into Sukkot. And uh, that speaks to us. Oy, 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 I'm going to stop on that now. 
because I will just go to town forever on that. But you'll come on Sukkot, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, and that is a very rich, uh, very rich understanding. But anyway, I thought it would be wise for us to take another look at Psalm 27. And so tonight, tonight, this morning, uh, and uh, next Shabbat, we're going to look at Psalm 27. Okay, uh, Psalm 27, like many Psalms, uh, is a very interesting. When we study the uh, Psalms, it's important to understand that, you know, there's a lot of ways of studying texts in the Bible. And uh, understanding genres of texts is very important. So, for example, when you study a proverb, uh, you study it to understand it a little different than you would from a narrative, like a story in the Bible. Uh, and you would study that differently from an uh, instruction in the Bible, like a law in the Bible, which you would study very differently from poetry in the Bible. It's not a flat earth. Uh, uh, even though this is the Word of God and is God-breathed, that it is literature. I mean, it is human writing, right? Uh, and so it is literature, and you read different kinds of literature uh, uh, differently. A proverb is not the same thing as a promise. A proverb is a proverbial statement, okay? And, uh, you know, uh, the book of Proverbs is written very differently from the book of Ecclesiastes. Wow. Uh, and, you know, there are actually uh, very rich ways of understanding the relationship of those two books when we understand how you interpret that kind of literature. MSI class, writings, wisdom literature. Okay? Uh, and uh, so when we come to the Psalms, there are different ways of understanding it. There's nothing wrong with just following it linearly, like this is what verse 1 says, this is what verse 2 says, this is what verse 3 says, and to uh, parse the verbs and to understand what's going on. But I would suggest that in many psalms, you have sometimes different voices uh, being heard. And in some psalms, for example, like this one, this is a classic to, to me, that when you read the first three verses of this psalm, uh, it is giving us, in a sense, like almost like a heading. If you, if you think of it as, actually think of it as like a, uh, a cake. Think of Psalm 27 as like a cake. And cake has different components, right? Like birthday cake. It has frosting on the top, and then there's the cake, right? And then sometimes... In the layers, there's a little more frosting, you know, you go down a, a layer cake. Well, Psalm 27 is a little bit like that, where when we read the first three verses, I, I, or I'll just say, um, even I, to make it simpler for us, because we're going to study it in two parts, the first six verses, I, they, are, they are saying something to us, but especially the first three verses, but you cannot appreciate what those three verses mean without understanding what's underneath it. Not just what comes after it, but what's underneath it. Because verses 1 to 3 are really the, the goal, the end game. But in order to get there, you have to understand what's going on underneath. 
So when we read Psalm 27, uh, in the first three verses, we read these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, or literally eat my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be, uh, I shall be confident. So this is a person, when you look at it carefully, this is a person that has experienced a deliverance, right? You see it, right? Uh, it's in the past tense. When, in verse 2, when evildoers came upon me, I, I, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. I, and so in verse 2, he's talking about a, like a testimony, like a personal experience I, that, uh, that he has had. And uh, he is very confident. This, these first three passage, these first three verses exude trust, confidence uh, in uh, in God. At the beginning, when he says, "The Lord is my light, and the Lord is my salvation," you know, the Lord is the one who gives me life. The Lord is the one uh, who uh, opens my eyes to see. Uh, the Lord is the one who gives me hope. You know, light in the Bible speaks of all of these uh, kinds of, of attributes. God gives us the path. He gives us the way to live. He, he gives us life. Uh, he gives us satisfaction. Uh, and then he says, my salvation, my deliverance. And of course, um, uh, perhaps when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, perhaps the deliverance is accentuating the light. You know, my light and my salvation. Uh, he's my deliverance. He's my light. He opens up my eyes. Therefore, he, so then he asks a rhetorical question. So who am I going to fear? You know, and then uh, uh, the Lord is the defense of my life, uh, which it can fall under the category of my light and my salvation. Whom shall I dread? Right? And so it's like he's fearless. Right? It's like he's, he's fearless. Uh, and he has experienced uh, uh, that uh, a God is indeed the deliverer. Now, it is interesting that in uh, appreciating God and uh, having this great confidence that evildoers come upon him and adversaries and enemies come his way. And a host, like a big army, encamps against him. And war rises uh, against him. None of those things go away. But he has confidence and he has trust uh, in God. Now, when you read this a certain way, he could appear kind of cocky, you know? Like, uh, uh, nothing can bother me. You know, uh, it doesn't matter, all those things going on. Uh, as if to like live in denial uh, of anything uh, uh, happening. Uh, that is not the case. And you know, when you read the Psalms, uh, there are other places that help us to understand this. For example, when you read Psalm 46 at the beginning, it says, God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in, in trouble. 
kind of saying the same thing, you know, using different words, same ideas are being uh, 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 conveyed. And then he says, therefore, we will not fear, right? This is a theme that when our confidence is in God, we don't fear, right? When we call God our help, our refuge, our stronghold, our strength, uh, we do not fear, though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Wow, a lot of bad stuff there, right? Uh, so he says, not that all of that is automatically taken away, but I will not fear. And then if we go back to Psalm 27, we see here he says, I will not dread I, uh, you know, I won't be wringing my hands, right? I, I will not fear. And then he repeats it again in verse 3. My heart uh, will not fear. And then he says, in spite of this, I, I will be confident. This is, uh, these are not words of, I guarantee, uh, you know, uh, that nothing bad will happen but rather it is a, a trust uh, in God. Uh, now, we could ask ourselves uh, the question, boy, wouldn't it be great if we all felt that way? Wouldn't it be great if I could really say that absolutely confidently? And maybe there are times when you do. Maybe there are times when we do. But my guess is, is that there are times when we are not so confident about this, that we are not so sure about this. Now, we know that, uh, you know, the, uh, in the theme in the back of many of these Psalms is uh, the exodus out of Egypt. The, you know, the, uh, the communal history of, of the Jewish people, when we talk about a delivered people, when we talk about refuge or we talk about deliverance, we, we think of the, uh, the Passover. God redeemed us out of Egypt, and then we dwelt in the wilderness. And this theme of coming out of slavery and dwelling in the wilderness and how God worked his uh, discipleship upon our people to prepare us to enter the promised land uh, uh, continues. And that, I think, is very interesting and very important uh, for us to remember here. So I think that when you look at verses 1 to 3, uh, and that, uh, well, now I'm going to read verses 4 to 6, and then we'll say something else about 1 to 3. Now, so then he says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to me uh, meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So now if you put verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 6 together, you see that if you leave out verse 4 for a minute, 5 and 6 are kind of like continuing this great statement of confidence, right? 
For in the, if you, so here, I'll read the second part of verse 3 and then verses 5 and 6. The war rise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer uh, in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And so, in a sense, one could say verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 and 6 uh, speak of this great, uh, great confidence. And yes, they serve as like a rallying cry uh, for us. And perhaps some of us, maybe some of you right now, can read those verses and say, I resonate with that, and I hope that we do. Because, you know, last week when we were talking about growing up into a mature uh, Messiah follower, into a mature congregation, this is maturity. This is, this is maturity, to be able to have that kind of confidence uh, in the Lord, but not in denial of real-life situations, right? So really, what this psalm is about, though, is about how you get there. Verses 1 to 3, especially 1 to 3, but also 5 and 6, is sort of like this, is like the frosting on the cake. That is the end game. That's the goal, okay? But really, what Psalm 27 is about is about a journey. It's about a journey, a lifelong journey, to get there. And what we will see by the end of next week is that this great confidence is uh, undergirded by a wrestling with God. Not some nice little package deal that there, I'm confident in God and, and I'm all set. This psalm is not about being all set. This psalm is about wrestling with God in difficult situations. And that the fruit of that wrestling, the, or, or you might say like the, yeah, the fruit that comes out of you squeeze the grapes, comes this confidence, comes this trust. And that's why it's not some kind of cocky statement of trust or a prideful statement of I trust God, you know, like I have a big, uh, you know, uh, S on my chest for spirit, Right? And you can shoot the bullets, but with my x-ray vision, I can see through it all. And, uh, and you have a big S that stands for spirit, but I'm trying to, I'm looking at you, but I can't, I'm trying to find God in there somewhere, right? Uh, but I see, uh, you know, your great words and your great courage and everything about you. Uh, but uh, what we find here is a confidence uh, that is born out of someone who has experienced God and someone who constantly seeks God. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of it, but because uh, verses 1 to 6 is so different from the rest of the Psalms, some have suggested that it was originally two different Psalms. Because as we'll see next week, verses 7 to the end is like a lament and speaks of difficulty about seeking God, God, reveal yourself, I don't see you, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas 1 to 6 is this confidence, see? And so what we want to understand now is a little bit of this journey, uh, and that takes us to verse 4. 
verse 4. How do we get there? How do we get to that, that real confidence in, in God? That no matter what comes my way, he will be my refuge, and I really won't fear the circumstances. And I will work through them, but I will not fear. How do we get there? Well, verse 4, key, key verse here, right? So in the middle of all this confidence, in the middle of all this, no matter what they do to me, I will not fear and I will not dread. He says this, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. I mean, we could just stop right there. That's an amazing statement. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. Boy, he is single-minded here. He uh, is thinking about one thing. One thing I shall seek from the Lord. Wow. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So he wants to be in the presence of God all the time. May I suggest he's not talking about relocating and getting a little apartment in the temple, okay? Uh, He's talking about dwelling, living, abiding in the presence of God, okay? Abiding, being at home in the presence uh, of God. Uh, and uh, uh, it's very interesting that sometimes we think that it's only when you come to the Brit Hadashah that we read about God dwelling with his people wherever they may be. In the Tanakh, yes, it is true that uh, the predominant place where God dwells with his people is in the tabernacle and then the temple, but as Peter is teaching in his class, right, All the way through the Tanakh, from Adam and Eve on, God is desirous of fellowship, having being in the presence of His people. He's right. You know the story of Adam and Eve. He's looking for them, and they're hiding, right? Uh, And but even when there is a temple, and even when there is a tabernacle, God consistently wants to dwell with His people. Well, it's interesting if you turn to Psalm ninety for a second. Psalm ninety. You read there, Lord, in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That is an amazing phrase. What's it doing in the Tanakh? What's it doing prior to the Ruach HaKodesh being poured out? Wait a minute, what's wrong with this? Lord, you have been our our dwelling place for all generations. Now, this is traditionally attributed to Moses. That means it goes all the way back. It's not just that the tabernacle is a dwelling place and the temple is a dwelling place, but God is the dwelling place. Now, there are other places, other places we could look where we read about God's holy habitation, where God dwells. And it is viewed as always with the people somewhere. And so may we not get the idea that that is something new and completely different, but that here in Psalm 27, the man who is confident or the person who is confident in the Lord is a person who has cultivated, cultivated an abiding relationship with God and dwells in the presence of God at work, in the car, on the plane, 
at home, in the living room, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, everywhere, mowing the lawn, wherever it might be. You know, whatever we're doing, that we have, that there is an abiding presence of God there. And that is cultivated. That is not, that does not come via finishing a book on how to, how to abide with the Lord. When you read Andrew Murray's book, Abiding in Him, when you finish the last page, doesn't mean now you're abiding in Him. You ever wonder that, you know, like when you get a, like, oh, I want to beat temptation. So I get a book on beating temptation. And I figure if I read the book, I got it. When the secret is, is that they all say the same thing. You know, abiding in the Lord, cultivating a relationship with God, which includes confession of sin, understanding who we are, understanding who God is, and all of those all of those uh, great and important uh, uh, things. So we see here that, first of all, he is single-minded. It's not like, you know, I would like to retire to Florida and dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I would like to uh, be able to retire early. Why do I keep saying retire? (laughs) Anyway, uh, I would like to get into that graduate school. There you go. Okay, uh, and dwell in the house of the Lord. I would like to meet my soulmate. I'd love to meet the love of my life and dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I would love that motorcycle and to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Right? I, I, the dream job and career and dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's not what he says. Right? The one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So you have to just start right there with cultivating a single-mindedness that I really, I really want to dwell in the presence of God all the days of my life. And you know, if you're disciplined enough in the spiritual disciplines, you can dwell, you can have an abiding presence of God. But it requires certain things that are countercultural to the way we live. Okay? See, you cannot cultivate this confidence in God like in the next half hour or when 60 minutes are up or maybe just today. See? Because notice what comes after his single mindedness. It's not just dwell in the house of the, it's not just dwell in the house of the Lord, but that is leading to something else. Look at the second part of verse four. That, oh, in order to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Whoa. Those are very interesting words. You know, in Hebrew, to behold, it's not uh, behold like behold God is my salvation. It's a different word. And it means to gaze. Isn't that great? Like to gaze. You know, I have a friend who is a fine artist. When I say fine artist, he's not just a really good artist, but, you know, he's a fine artist. He lives in Connecticut. Uh, I've known him for uh, 40 years. And uh, he is my favorite person to go to an art gallery with. Because, you know, I am kind of like Mr. Meat and Potatoes. You know? Nice picture. You know know what I mean? Uh, But what he does with me is uh, like I remember 
we were in Chicago uh, once many, many years ago. We were in an art gallery, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm saying, yeah, it's nice. So he says, let's walk up close, like, cl- like real close. Don't touch, Howard. <laughs> okay, you know? But like real up, real up close. And he says, look at the way that he uh, used his brush to make those tiny little strokes. And notice what happens at the end of e- at the end of this stroke. How it goes a little like this, and then when you step back, that is how it looks like there's a shadow, and it looks like real light is coming through the window. And look at what he did with the and he going on and on and on and on. Wow! It took a long time for me to look at that painting and to appreciate it. It wasn't just looking at it or hearing about it. You know, it took time. And so to behold the beauty or the pleasantness, another word for that, uh, of God. And by the way, it is, uh, the word is something like pleasantness, not just beauty, not only beauty as in nice looking. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure it includes that. But anyway, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple takes Time takes time, takes slowing down, takes thinking, meditating, meaning just like sitting quietly uh, and dwelling on the things of a God. And that is a key to that trust and confidence in a God. This issue of uh, slowing down and of uh, meditating and thinking about the things of God is very interesting. So <clears throat> I have a, a cousin who's a rabbi in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, at a Reformed synagogue in Poughkeepsie. And uh, she uh, just has a, a, her name is Leah, and uh, she just has a real way with, uh, real way with a, a gifted writer. Uh, and so she uh, was talking about something, in, frankly, in this week's uh, uh, Torah portion, not related to Psalm uh, 27. And uh, so she talks about uh, how she went in one day to uh, hear uh, uh, someone doing something in a library of a storytelling, like listening to someone tell stories, and then going to the same day to an a cappella concert. And the concert was always a cappella. And so uh, she reflected on why did I uh, why did I do those two things? And so she talked about how how they uh, the simplicity of them, a cappella singing without music, uh, and storytelling, which is where you're sitting, you're listening to someone uh, speaking, and uh, you know you're listening in- intently. So she goes on to say this. I um, she says. Even our Shabbat service, I guess I'll start a little further. Acapella singing and live storytelling might be the lowest tech forms of entertainment that are still popular in the 21st century. At these events, there were no screens, no buttons, no instruments, not even any written words or music. Both events rely entirely on the power of people sharing their voices and on people's willingness, even with all high-tech entertainment options available, to sit for an hour to listen and to be moved by those voices. Even our Shabbat worship is sometimes higher tech than this. We have a printed text, a cadre of instruments, 
and even sometimes a lighted screen. Many faith communities, including ours, are constantly considering how we can bring more technology into our spiritual lives to enhance our experience, but also to compete with everything that we are consuming in other areas of this high-tech world. Enhancing our worship with technology has its benefits, but it would be a mistake to think that the use of technology inherently makes every experience better. Huh, I wish I wrote that. Okay, anyway. But we're related, so, you know, it's okay. All right? Shabbat is one of the few spaces in which we can still take refuge from the fast-paced, highly curated, and overproduced world so that we experience something slow, simple, and essential. Both live storytelling and a cappella singing have experienced a resurgence in recent years. I don't think it's a coincidence. As technology fills our lives with content and pushes us to move faster, produce faster, and consume faster, it is, count, it is a countercultural act to slow down, take away all the bells and whistles, and strip an experience down to its essence, whether that is one person speaking or eight people singing. By taking away the mask of high-tech media, we can begin to hear real message, something that higher-tech modes of entertainment can get away without having. By simplifying and slowing down, we can begin to block out some of the noise that keeps us from hearing ourselves, from hearing with others, and from being open to uh, hear God. Isn't that something? And what she was referring to is this motif of being in the wilderness, that God slowed down the Jewish people after rushing out of Egypt. He slowed them down for 40 years and taught our people very, uh, very slowly about how he's the provider and about uh, how he is the protector uh, of, uh, of our people. It took 40 years to get to the promised land, you know? And so it didn't happen right away. And then, you know, just one other thing I want to read uh, comes from Abraham Joshua Heschel. And this is a series of statements uh, about wonder and what he calls radical amazement. You know, boy, you know, another great little phrase there, huh? Radical amazement. Among the many things that religious tradition, this is from uh, uh, Heschel, okay? Among many things that religious tradition holds in store for us is a legacy of wonder. The surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God and the importance of worship is to take things for granted. Now, so he's talking about taking things for granted. She's talking about rushing through things. But in the same vein, he's talking about taking things for granted. Indifference to the sublime wonder of living is the root of sin. Wonder or radical amazement is the chief characteristic of the religious person's attitude toward history and nature. One attitude is alien to his spirit, that is, taking things for granted, regarding events as a natural course of things. To find an approximate cause of a phenomenon is no answer to his ultimate wonder. He knows that there are laws that regulate the course of natural processes. He is aware of the regularity and pattern of things. However, such knowledge fails to mitigate his sense of perpetual surprise 
at the fact that there are facts at all. Looking at the world, he would say, as it says in Psalm 118, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information. (laughs) I'm going to say that again. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. Awareness of the divine begins with wonder. It is the result of what man does with his higher incomprehension. Higher incomprehension. The greatest hindrance to such awareness is our adjustment to conventional notions, to mental cliches. Wonder or radical amazement, the state of maladjustment to words and notions is therefore a prerequisite for an authentic awareness of that which is. And so, you know, as Messiah followers, sometimes we think, well, I know the Lord, and that's it. But we suffer the same malady as everybody else. As Messiah followers, as, you know, evangelical believers, uh, that God is in the box. And as long as I got my doctrinal statement down, Uh, and as long as I can read through the Bible in a year, uh, and as long as uh, I hear that message or I read that book, uh, I'm all set. But in verse 4 of of Psalm 27 is the key. The one thing he has asked from the Lord is that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life so that he can behold or gaze at the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. That means to take the time to understand, on one hand, the simplicity of God, and then on the other hand, the radical amazement of it all. I mean, you know, sometimes people who love the Lord will argue over every aspect of everything in the Scriptures and lose the amazement of it all. Like creation, for example. It's amazing. It takes time to appreciate the essence of God's creation and to look at it and, and to appreciate. You can't do that by simply just saying, okay, I saw the tree, now let's move on. Okay? You have to stop and, I hate to say it, smell the roses. Okay? I don't usually like to use cliches like that, but it seemed to work right there. Uh, and, and so I would encourage us to get unplugged a little bit. Now, I will say, I never do this, but I did it today, and I, it did not escape me, that you may have seen me, and it was, I was reading Hebrew. I was reading Psalm 27 in Hebrew. That's what I was uh, looking, at, um, looking at here. Uh, but needless to say, getting unplugged, Very, very, very important uh, uh, here. And so I hope that during this season, as we prepare for the High Holy Days, we can take some time to pray about being single-minded, to get our priorities in order. You know, what did Yeshua say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
You know, certainly uh, we read in a number of places about the priorities of, uh, of, uh, of seeking God and, and of embracing him and of abiding in the vine. You know, in, uh, as we close, it just makes me think of uh, John chapter 15, abiding in the vine. We can do nothing outside of the vine. Nothing, no thing. Yeshua isn't an add-on. Yeshua is everything. Our relationship with God is everything, and everything is integrated into that relationship with God. And I hope that we can indeed take the time to spend with uh, uh, the Lord. Because as we will see, and in whatever way that, that we do, you know, uh, I uh, uh, led a, um, a Bible discussion on this uh, last Wednesday morning, or two Wednesday mornings ago, and I asked everybody, uh, you know, well, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you do this? And so it was like, well, read the Bible, you know? So I, I, I made us drill down more. And so how do you, but how do you uh, behold or gaze at the beauty of the Lord? How do you do that? And so we began to think about ways of spending quiet time with God. And that's a, that makes a good, a good discussion. But for our purpose, we want to remember the need to slow down, the need to do that. And the end goal, uh, when we are meditating in his temple, when we are beholding the beauty of the Lord, we will over time cultivate a confidence in God. So that no matter what comes our way, we will never lose our hope. We will never lose our trust. We will have a transformed worldview that believers in Messiah are supposed to have. Uh, that we rise above the circumstances and we can live a very fruitful life no matter what comes our way. May we have that focus. May we be able to say, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to, made, to meditate on his temple. Rosh Hashanah is two weeks from tomorrow night. I encourage you that at some point between now and Sunday night, October 2nd, you, in your own way, meditate in his temple. In your own way, behold the beauty of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you, Lord, for this great word tucked right in the middle of all this confidence. Lord, the psalmist prays that he would get there. Lord, thank you that he doesn't say that I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and I behold the beauty of the Lord, that he constantly seeks that Lord. The one who has such great confidence is one who seeks, one who is always in the process of becoming, never sensing that, well, they've attained it. So as we read in the prophets and in the Bridchadasha, let us press on. Let us press on to know the Lord. Let us not have the attitude that, well, there's nothing more for me to learn. There's nothing more for me to know. There's nothing more for me to experience. But I am God's gift to everybody, so they need to hear what I have to say. Lord, let us never have that kind of notion. But Lord, let us be like this psalmist, one who is seeking more of you all the time. And Lord, it is a paradox. As we seek more of you, more trust comes. 
more confidence comes as we seek more of you. Lord, I pray for us that over the next couple of weeks we might seek more of you. Lord, and I pray that you would, over the course of our lives, God, uh, may you uh, cultivate this confidence in you and may it demonstrate life in Messiah and may it be attractive to the world around us. Lord, we live in a world that is scared to death. We live in a world of unrest. Lord, we live in a world that has no confidence and where there is mistrust of authority. Authority mistrusts people. Everybody mistrusts everybody. And Lord, it leads to chaos and anarchy. Lord, we need you. We need the anchor of our souls, Lord, to burst into this world, not just for us to sing songs about in the confines of a sanctuary, in a sanctuary, but Lord, out there in the world. The world needs this kind of confidence, Lord, this trust, Lord. Lord, we pray, God, that we would cultivate this. We pray for all of our uh, uh, Messiah followers everywhere to cultivate this kind of way of life. And Lord, may it be attractive to our world. And so God, through this quiet, beholding the beauty of you, of you meditating in your temple, may we <laughs> make a profound difference, therefore, in the world. And God, we do pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Next week, we will begin in verse 7, and we will uh, find out that there are still other ways that uh, the psalmist has cultivated this confidence. And uh, this is a very powerful psalm. Uh, and so it behooves us to be reading it during the high holy days.